Money Goals for 2021. Welcome to Common Sense on the Prairie, a podcast by First National Wealth Management in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We are a regional best provider of wealth management services, including investment management and financial planning, as well as personal trust, institutional trust, and retirement plan services. This podcast is our chance to share some of our passions and help you make your money work for you. You may have heard, but we're now in a new year. Thank God, right? And to start us off on the right foot today, I'm joined by Certified Financial Planner and the Wealth Advisory Manager at First National Wealth Management, Don Ron. Don, welcome to the pod. Thanks, Adam. I love to talk planning, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. But before we dive in, let's take care of that disclaimer. Any comments, insights, or strategies discussed on this podcast are intended to be general in nature and therefore may not be suitable for you and your situation, whatever that may be. Before acting on anything we discuss, please consult with your attorney, CPA, and or your financial advisor. So I've never been much of a New Year's resolution guy, but I will admit that I did make one last year. You're probably going to laugh at this, Don, but 2020 was supposed to be my year of fun. Any guesses on how that turned out? Yeah, not well, right? What about you? Do you make New Year's resolutions? Not really in a formal way every year. Each year, I usually make a mental note to be a bit more diligent with my exercise routine or diet. Usually, like most people, the resolution wears off and I fall back to the same old diet and exercise routine. Yeah. For 2021, I have focused on my finances even more because by the middle of the year, my youngest daughter, Carly, will be graduating from college and getting married. This is going to be a change in the household cash flow for my wife, Stephanie, and myself, and I think for the better, if you know what I mean. We'll be getting Carly off the payroll, so to speak, which means Stephanie and I should have some extra dollars to focus on our own specific financial goals. That's a big deal. Congratulations. Thanks. So I suppose next to losing weight, financial resolutions are some of the most common New Year's resolutions made, whether that's to make more money save more, or even give more. And they probably should be. But where do you start? Today, we're going to go through several strategies that can help put you in a better spot financially this year than last. But before we dig into specific resolutions, I'd like to start by discussing an important concept that should overlay all the strategies we discussed today. And that's the power of small changes. I believe the reason why most New Year's resolutions fail is because we bite off more than we can chew. We start the year by making big, transformative plans that are destined to fail because we get discouraged if we don't see progress right away. Here's where the power of small changes can help. And it applies to nearly any resolution, including those of the financial variety. Small changes, even if they don't seem like much of the time, when added up can make a meaningful impact. Don't believe me? Let's walk through an example. Don, you and your team just put out a piece about the impact of making small incremental increases to retirement savings. Can you walk our listeners through what you found? We compared two different hypothetical scenarios over a 30-year time horizon for a household that was earning $100,000 in gross annual income in today's dollars. For both scenarios, we assumed the household received a 3% salary raise each year, and the investment portfolio earned a 6% annualized rate of return for 30 years. For scenario A, we assumed the household saved 5% of their gross income over the 30 years and did not make any adjustments. In scenario B, we assume the household saved 5% of their gross income in the first year. However, they increased their savings rate by 1% each year for the next 10 years until they were contributing 15% of their gross annual income. At that point, they continued contributing 15% for the next 20 years. Needless to say, the results were dramatically different. In scenario A, they saved $238,000 of their gross income over 30 years, and their portfolio is worth $586,000. In scenario B, 
They saved $653,000 of their gross income over 30 years, and their portfolio was worth $1,466,000. The difference between the two scenarios is $880,000. I only imagine that a retirement lifestyle between those two scenarios is very different. The hypothetical shows that if you're willing to sacrifice some discretionary income now, you'll definitely set yourself up for a much more secure retirement later. That's a big difference. Wow. And I think that's a perfect example of the power of small changes. But it also highlights another important concept, systematizing change. I think we all have some level of fear, or maybe intimidation, of making huge changes all at once. But the example you just gave is a perfect illustration of systematizing change. In your example, savers didn't just go from saving 5% to saving 15% overnight, did they? No. They increase their savings gradually and consistently over time. They systematize the change over a period of years, thereby making it easier to accept and implement. And I think that's the first lesson. Don't try to take on too much at the beginning of the year, only to find yourself discouraged if you come up short. Build up to the change you're seeking. Now, I said we'd be covering some common New Year's resolutions, but right off the bat, I'm going to go off track because I don't think this first one is actually common at all, but I think it should be. And that's putting together an annual net worth statement. A net worth statement is simply a listing of all your assets and your liabilities. To calculate your net worth, take your total assets and subtract your total liabilities. That's your net worth. This is something I do every year. What about you, Don? Do you make an annual net worth statement? I do, Adam. I've been doing this for the past 20 years. The president of the community bank in my hometown suggested that I do this each year, and I followed his advice. I use the same spreadsheet that loan officers use to take financial statements for their customers. I've kept a record of these statements, and it's sort of fun to compare our net worth statement year by year. It's especially encouraging to see the net worth increased in most years, barring a significant downturn in the stock markets. Not only do you track the value of your assets, but you keep track of your debts too. Do you and Stephanie review it together, or is this more of a solo mission? We do. I think Stephanie has grown to appreciate this review, especially the last few years as we get closer to approaching retirement. Yeah, Diane and I do as well, and I think we've both found it to be a great exercise. However, if it doesn't go so well for you and your significant other, I might encourage you to listen to episode 11 on financial therapy. So how about you? What happened with your net worth last year? Did you save more and increase your assets? Did you pay down some debt? Or did you slide backwards? You can't know unless you track it. Your net worth statement gives you a snapshot of the state of your personal finances and allows you to track your progress over time. Don, we utilize some incredible financial planning technology to help our clients track their net worth. What are some of the big takeaways our clients get from going through this process with their advisor? That's right, Adam. We use sophisticated financial planning software we call FMB WellCheck with our vendor, eMoney, that provides the technology platform. We make it as easy as possible to help our clients build their net worth statement, and we provide them an online viewing platform so they can track it as often as they'd like. For any account that we manage for the client, those account values are updated automatically on a daily basis, indicating the previous day's market closing value. For accounts that the First National Wealth Management Department does not manage, the client has the ability to link their outside accounts into their net worth statement through their login. This includes assets like bank accounts, 401k plans, or other types of employer-sponsored retirement plans, and liabilities like home mortgages, lines of credit, or credit cards. For assets such as real estate, personal belongings, and any other asset that cannot be found on a website, we give them a checklist. The client can enter the values themselves or we can do it for them. We will do whatever the client prefers. I think the benefit of having a net worth statement helps us understand the client's overall picture 
so we, as their wealth advisor, have better context in which to provide them planning or investment management advice. We understand how the accounts that we manage for them fit into their entire situation. We also break down the net worth statement by indicating how the client owns their assets. For example, what is owned by each spouse individually and what is owned jointly. This is very important to help the client understand what it means for estate planning and helps them path the most orderly passing of assets. We also review beneficiary designations for retirement accounts and life insurance as part of their net worth process. I think the biggest takeaway for the client is it gives them a snapshot of their total financial picture and allows them to chart their progress towards their long-term goals. Mm, That's really sophisticated stuff. So whether you track your net worth using financial planning technology or on a napkin, make a resolution this year to update your net worth statement. It's a great jumping off point to the year, and it will likely generate one or more resolutions for the year ahead. The next resolution I have listed is paying down debt. We hear this one a lot. Don, how are our clients viewing paying down debt today? And has it changed? I think clients view it differently, Adam. But in general, most of our clients have a goal of paying down debt and want to be debt-free by the time they are retired. I also think with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act put into law in 2018, which almost doubled the standard deduction, the ability to itemize home mortgage interest on their tax return was not there anymore for most people. This, combined with the low interest rate environment on home mortgages, seems to have people focused on reducing their debt even faster. I'm guessing you and I would agree that no matter the interest rate environment, high interest debt is always a no-go. That's usually credit cards, but that could also be personal loans or even some student loans. If you have that type of debt in your life, we would encourage you to move heaven and earth to get it paid off. It is nearly impossible to win with money when you have that working against you. In most other cases, debt reduction comes down to trade-offs. Do I pay down my debt or do I invest that money instead? The right answer for you likely hinges on where you are in the wealth bidding process and how comfortable you are having debt hanging over you. What do you think, Don? How should we feel about debt? Adam, as you said, I think it really depends on what stage of life you're in. Yeah. I also realize people have different circumstances. I'm definitely a proponent to be totally debt-free by the time you're retired. You no longer have the income coming in to service the debt payments, and that means you have to draw down a larger percentage of your investment portfolio to make the payments. Ideally, you're only taking withdrawals from your investments for living expenses that are not related to debt during retirement. I also totally agree that you want to reduce high-interest debt such as credit cards as quickly as possible. Normally, the credit card debt is on consumable goods and services that essentially have little future value, such as clothing, dining out, traveling, and so forth. You're paying high interest on debt where there is really no asset to show for it. I realize many young people have student loan debt out of necessity given the cost of education. In most circumstances, this debt is incurred as an investment in your future to increase your earning potential and should pay off over time. However, you want to try to be prudent and try to borrow for the actual cost of education and not things like lifestyle costs, like bar money or spring break trips, (laughs) to keep it to a reasonable level. I think clients should have a definitive goal to reduce student debt within five to 10 years of graduation or sooner if possible. I think the best form of debt is a home mortgage. Interest rates are typically much lower than most other forms of debt. The home is your asset that usually appreciates in value over time. And as long as you plan to live in the home at least five to seven years or more, it beats paying rent that was essentially for shelter only. Also, most people would have to rent a long time before they could just buy a home outright. Mm -hmm. These are conversations I'm having with my youngest daughter and her fiance as they're both graduating from college in May and will be just getting started in their careers. 
With the question, do I pay down debt or do I invest instead? I think it depends on the type of debt that you have to pay down. If it's high interest debt like credit cards, student loans, or automobile loans, I would definitely recommend paying off the debt. For a low interest home mortgage, as long as you have a long-term perspective, for instance, a 10-year perspective, you may mathematically be better off in the long run to invest and do what is called leveraging. Of course, you're taking on more risk and there's no guarantee that you'll be better off. Also, I've never had a client in my career that pays off their home mortgage and come back to me and say, I wish I wouldn't have paid off my home mortgage. Yeah, I bet. They just feel great that they have their home paid for and having that peace of mind is definitely worth something. Yeah. Sometimes these decisions just come down to personal factors like your risk appetite, meaning how comfortable you are with risk. And that's what debt is. It's risk. I've mentioned this in past episodes, but for me, because I started my career just as the financial crisis was unfolding in 2008, I think I'll always be a bit uneasy with debt, but I understand there are logical arguments on both sides of that question. If debt reduction is one of your goals for 2021, the best place to start is with a plan. There are several great resources you can tap for help. It just comes down to finding what approach works best for you. Our next resolution is to save more for retirement. This one's so common, it's hardly a New Year's resolution. For most people, it's just a resolution. But unfortunately, Americans as a whole are coming up short. Fidelity has put together data about retirement savings and structured it by decade. Here's what they found. For the average American in their 20s, their annual contribution rate is 7%, and their average retirement savings balance is 10500 For those in their 30s, contribution rate is 8%, and the average balance is 38400 In their 40s, contribution rate is still at 8%, and the average balance is 93400 In their 50s, the contribution rate is now up a bit to 10%, and the average balance is $160,000. And in their 60s, contribution rate is 11%, and the average balance is 182100 Don, these balances and contribution rates just aren't going to cut it. The cost of healthcare-related expenses alone could eat up those savings in retirement. When you're talking with your clients about retirement savings, what are you recommending they save each year? And I'm usually doing this through the context of a financial plan where we're looking at their retirement goal and running projections of how it looks throughout their lifetime. If a client is in the position to maximize their 401k plan and Roth IRAs, I'm encouraging them to do this. The general rule of thumb is to save 15 to 20% of your gross income towards retirement. And again, this is where those small systematized increases can play a role. If you can't save 15 to 20% today, it's okay. Set those annual increases each year until you are saving at your desired rate. The next resolution is to increase the amount in your emergency fund. We believe there are two types of emergency funds, a starter emergency fund and a larger, fully funded emergency fund. Don, can you talk through these emergency funds and what each is for? How much should we have in each? For the starter emergency fund, which would be someone just starting out in their career, we would recommend getting at least 1000 saved for when things happen, like car repairs, new tires, so forth. This helps a person avoid putting an emergency expense on a credit card, which has high interest. Ideally, they should get this up to $2,000 or $3,000. For a person that is established in their career, we would recommend having three to six months worth of household expenses saved. This means you would not need to tap into long-term investments like retirement accounts in case there is a temporary loss of employment or a disability due to health. I always think of it like emergency funds are meant to insulate you from life's unpleasant surprises. And there will always be unpleasant surprises. They should help us sleep better at night. Whatever the right amount is for you, a great resolution in 2021 may be to build up your emergency reserves. The next resolution is saving for big expenses. 
Two of the most common we see are saving for a down payment on a new home and saving for a kid's college. First, let's talk about buying a new home. Don, do we still encourage people to put down at least 20% towards the purchase of a new home? I think putting down 20% helps the client avoid PMI, which is for private mortgage insurance, which keeps the monthly payment lower. The PMI is something the borrower pays to help insure the loan against default. Basically, you, the borrower, are paying an insurance premium to protect the lender, not yourself. I would definitely recommend that a client talk to one of our mortgage loan specialists here at the First National Bank in Sioux Falls to get educated about the different paths to home ownership. I'm not an expert in this area, but they certainly are. I think this is another thing that my daughter Carly and her fiancé will be contemplating in the next year or two. I think it comes down to weighing the differences between renting longer to get from saving from a 10% down payment to a 20% down payment, and a lot of factors enter into that. How much is the extra cost of the PMI? Is the mortgage rate different for 10% down versus 20% down? Another unpredictable factor would be what is going to happen to mortgage rates between saving 10% down versus 20% down. If interest rates go up in the time frame, it may be better off to get into home sooner and save from paying rent for that extra couple of years or more. What about saving for college? How should people approach that? You know, Adam, I think saving for college is important, but parents want to make sure that this is not the primary goal that they put too much focus on. Parents should be focusing on their own retirement goal as a primary factor in developing their savings goals. I think the 529 plan is the best way to save for college because you get the tax-free growth benefit in the 529 plan as long as the funds are used for paying college expenses. It is good to have a goal in mind of how much you want to provide for your child's education and how much you want to accumulate for each child. Again, if this is encroaching on your retirement goals, you want to pause and back off the savings towards the college education goal. I regularly harp on this point, but I think it bears repeating. Before you save for your kids' college, you have to make sure you're taking care of yourself first. This is where our Wealth Accumulator Roadmap can be helpful. As a reminder, those steps are as follows. Step number one, save $1,000. Step number two, pay off all high-interest debt. Step number three, save enough to get the employer match. Step number four, fully funded emergency fund. Step number five, save 15 to 20% of gross pay towards retirement. Step number six, save for children's college. Step number seven, pay off all remaining debt and save for future expenses. And step number eight, contribute to a non-retirement investment account. Notice that saving for kids' college is step number six. Yes, it's true. Saving for your kids' college is important, but it must be viewed within the larger context of what you're trying to build. And that's a life that doesn't include you living in your kids' basement after you've run out of money. Our next resolution, setting a budget. Ugh. But you knew it was coming, didn't you? Don, is it just me, or do people totally hate budgets? You know, Adam, I think most people dread budgets. It seems like you can get caught up in the minutia of trying to track each dollar, and it can be very cumbersome and frustrating for people. What about you? You a budgeter? Yes, but I've gone through a transition of trying to budget every dollar when I first got married and graduated from college to taking a bigger pitch approach a year or two later. Sure. My wife Stephanie and I got married over 30 years ago. It was a source of frustration for me to try to track every dollar. Yeah. It was even a bigger frustration for Stephanie when I'd ask her about every dollar. <laughs> I quickly realized it is more important to have a solid marriage than it is to track every dollar in the budget. If you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I think you've already done a podcast on this called Financial Therapy that addresses that situation. Yeah, we did. I just try to focus on how much I need to save to meet our long-term retirement goals or other things we want to save for, like bucket list trips. Sure. 
from my experience, budgeting can take on one or two forms, and you, you kind of touched on those. And Diane and I have done both. There's a traditional budget where you track every dollar you make and every dollar you plan to spend. Or you can have what I'll call a savings goal budget. This is where you set the amount you plan to save and worry less about everything else. Let me walk through the difference. A traditional budget, at least as most people know it, is a very detailed and prescriptive plan for how you're going to spend each dollar over a specified period, whether that's a week, a month, or a year. Traditional budgets are particularly useful for those living on, well, a tight budget, meaning your income needs to stretch a bit more to cover your living expenses. With a traditional budget, every dollar counts and every dollar needs to have a purpose. However, as your income increases and you create a little more margin in your financial life, there may come a time when you ease back a bit on the budget and shift your concentration to your savings goals. This is for people who have a fully funded emergency fund and are saving at least 15 to 20% of their gross pay towards retirement, and they probably don't have much debt to speak of or intend to take on any. For these folks, they can afford not to sweat the small stuff like grabbing an expensive coffee because the big stuff is already taken care of. Now, that's not an excuse to be reckless with your money. Far from it. In this stage, you've already committed to significant savings and have likely become an expert living on less than you make. No matter which type of budget is right for you, I believe you need to be budgeting with a purpose. A why. Because budgeting just for the sake of budgeting is nearly no one's idea of fun. Which brings us to our final resolution. Setting your why. Why are you choosing to better yourself financially this year? What will that do for you? Does it give you more independence to pursue the things that you love? Or does it help you build a legacy for your family? Don, we structure our client engagements around goals. Why do you think it's important to have goals-driven process? What does it do for our clients when they are clear on those goals? I think it is important for clients to have financial goals because without goals, it is hard to determine what you're aiming for in the first place. When you have a goal, it gives you direction, it gives you purpose, and it helps create accountability to take the appropriate action to help you achieve their goal. We utilize our sophisticated financial planning software to input clients' goals and chart their progress towards that goal. The most common goal clients want to track is their retirement planning goal. Yeah, sure. This is what I really enjoy the most about my position as a wealth advisor and certified financial planner, helping people discern their own unique goals and by asking them thought-provoking questions and helping them zero on what is important to them. For example, when I ask my clients how much they will need in today's hours, to live the retirement lifestyle they want, it is hard for them to answer that question right away. Our software program will factor in inflation, tax liabilities, and loan payments for the clients, so they just need to know how much net income after taxes they need to live on. Most people do not have a detailed budget, which we've talked about, so it is difficult for them to articulate. There are rules of thumb that I can share with them to get the thoughts flowing, but I really prefer the client to think about their retirement income goal thoroughly and establish that goal on their own. Then, they are more likely to take ownership of their own goal. When we review the financial planning projections that chart the progress towards a goal, it is then a much more meaningful process for them. Sure. The same discernment process applies to all other goals, too, like we've talked about. Saving for a down payment on a home, saving for children's college education, saving for a vacation, or any other specific goal. Don, thanks so much for joining me today. This was awesome. I really appreciate it. Until next time, please continue to subscribe and tell your friends. We'll talk with you again soon. 